This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm Welcome, welcome, welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, your weekly show about gardening. Just said that to <laughs> piss Bush off, who's not here tonight. He hates being called I just that. heard the explosion from Macedon. <laughs> <laughs> he hates us being called a show about gardening, or even the, the environment, apparently, uh, as of last week. Um, we, I think we're metaphorical gardeners, gardeners of the human spirit. <laughs> yes. And, uh, <laughs> and our future prospects. And the voice you've heard in the studio... We're all lonesome tonight. Uh, is Jed McCartney? How are you, Jed? I'm well, Adam. Yeah, this is, um, I think, our smallest gathering in our however many shows. It is, yeah. But yeah. fear not, because uh, Sarah is going to be with us in pre-recorded maybe, form. Maybe our smallest gathering, but biggest content. Ooh, Ooh. I'd like to think so. <laughs> it is a very good interview. Uh, Sarah and I spoke to uh, this fellow, Sean Chamberlain, last night. Now. Oh, I'll step back one step because there's kind of two characters who we're going to be, in a sense, interviewing. One of them, unfortunately, uh, is deceased, but we're going to be hearing a lot of his words and some in his own voice. And that person is the green economist and historian David Fleming, Transition Town founder, and we'll talk about what that is if you haven't heard about it tonight, uh, Transition Towns. Uh, the founder of that, Rob Hopkins, described David Fleming as one of the most original, brilliant, urgently needed, underrated and ahead of his time thinkers of the last 50 years. And after he died suddenly about seven years ago, uh, Sean Chamberlain, who we are speaking to tonight, has put together a manuscript which David left behind into two different books. In his eulogy of David Fleming, Sean wrote... Fleming's true passion and genius was for exploring and understanding that mysterious thing community in all its disparate forms. He admired tradition and ceremony for their ability to engender cultural stability and was a lifelong member of deep-rooted groups as diverse as the English Song and Dance Society, his local church in Hampstead, the Oxford and Cambridge Club and Ancient Guild, the worshipful company of fishmongers. I kid you not. Yeah. Uh, he was a passionate advocate for the critical importance of pubs and memorably, when once asked how best to improve the resilience of one's local community, he answered, join the choir. He had a lot of other more conventionally notable achievements. Sean will also mention these, but he f- uh, helped found the UK's Green Party. He started a quite influential New Economics Foundation. As it does come across, he's a bit of an Anglophile. <laughs> he was indeed like English. It. Yeah, and are we ready to play the interview, Jed? Yeah, we should be all set. Excellent. Well, this is Sarah and I speaking to Sean Chamberlain at his home in Devon. Sean Chamberlain has been involved with the Transition Network, a movement of communities coming together to reimagine and rebuild our world, since its inception in 2005. He co-founded Transition Town Kingston and wrote the Transition Movement's second book, The Transition Timeline. That book describes four scenarios for the world over the next 20 years, ranging from denial to the transition vision, whereby we radically shift our culture toward a low-energy world. Sean's book covers key areas such as food, energy, demographics, transport and healthcare, and takes stock of climate change and peak oil. Sean is the Managing Director of the Fleming Policy Centre. More recently, Sean is the editor of two books by his late friend and mentor, Dr David Fleming. One is Fleming's magnum opus, Lean Logic, a dictionary for the future and how to survive it, and a smaller introductory text, Surviving the Future, Culture, Carnival and Capital in the Aftermath of the Market Economy. Sean is the person behind darkoptimism.org, 
a website that is home to not-for-profit public interest research and activism. The website reads, Dark optimism is, in part, a way of seeing life which is not afraid of seeking the truth, even when the truth is unpalatable or seems overwhelming, which aligns perfectly with what Greening the Apocalypse is about. So it is with much joy that we welcome Sean Chamberlain to the show. Hello, Sean. Hey, guys. Great to be with you. Uh, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be concerned about these things? Sure. So I guess uh, about 12 years ago, I was uh, running um, a learning centre for marginalised groups. So I was working with drug misusers and people with mental health issues and young asylum seekers in uh, in Kingston, in southwest London in, in England. And uh, in my spare time back then, I was really learning about particularly climate change and, and peak oil energy issues and started feeling like I was really enjoying the work I was doing um, and started feeling like it was I was helping people to reintegrate with society but society itself seemed to be running off a cliff and that uh, sort of led me to think well maybe that's you know where I want to be putting my energies but I had no idea what to do uh, you know I looked at the world and I looked at who was engaging with it and people said oh you should join Greenpeace or something and I looked at what they were doing and I thought well that doesn't inspire me. So I ended up basically taking a year out, you might say, learning to live very cheaply, um, quitting my job and uh, spending what ended up being about a year uh, just kind of reading around, um, going and harassing interesting seeming people, going to events. And um, and then eventually, uh, around the end of 2006, ended up at a place called Schumacher College in Devon in England. And uh, there I met Rob Hopkins just as he was about to kick off the the transition movement um and also david fleming and uh and really a whole peer group i think i think there were about 25 of us on the course and there's probably still 10 of those people i'm in regular contact now sort of 10 years later um and that was really where i where i discovered my uh my peer group around this stuff and really that shaped the last the last 10 years of my life that that fortnight's course and started working very closely with rob and with david and sort of led to where i am today it would be a huge oversight if we haven't talked about transition on this show before. I'm sure we've, we've mentioned it in passing, but we've never devoted a whole show to it. But we'll mm. it would be good to come back to that just for people that haven't heard about that. But what about, um, so your website is Dark Optimism. What's, what's, the, what's the philosophy behind that? Mm. Well, I, I have a sort of uh, a strap line that I like to use, which is being, being unashamedly positive about the kind of world we could create, but unashamedly realistic about how far away we are from doing it. And, um, and that actually pretty much sums up my take on life. I, it, was, it was David Fleming who, um, who sort of inspired the name in a way because he and I were sitting around one day and I was setting up a website and wondering what I should call it. And someone had asked me a couple of days before what kind of a, kind of a person I was and this phrase had popped into my head that I was a sort of dark optimist. And um, and I, I sort of jokingly said to David, oh, maybe I should just call the website Dark Optimism. And he turned to me with this serious look in his eye and said, Sean, it would be an honor to partner with the Dark Optimist. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of looked at him a bit strangely. And then over the next few days, I sort of mulled it and it became clear it was the right name to me. And uh, Ben was very delighted to find that um, I was the first one to register the uh, the website. And uh, that was that was how it all kicked off. So, so aesthetically, would you describe yourself as like a goth that that likes the outdoors? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I think that sums me up. You've, um, you've, you've also been involved in Dark Mountain. Is that like I a have. secret tunnel where there's other like eco superheroes yeah, it's, like it's yourself? Like, or? Yeah, do you know? Do you know the film The Nightmare Before Christmas? The animation. <laughs> yeah. so there's this whole there's this whole dark world. Um, and so far, the mountaineers and the optimists have sort of escaped from the dark world into our reality. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole there's a whole world of us in there, and we're basically we're the scouts, and we're trying to trying to create some kind of portal by which we can it all come through and uh, take over your world. Is the portal Twitter? <laughs> I want it to be Twitter. <laughs> quick, quick, funding. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dark Mountain uh, is is something that. That, yeah, I was involved in quite early, and um, and I think it's a really. I'm not sure whether that's something you've talked about on the show before, but something no, I think yet. is a really important um, element of I don't know what you might call our wider movement because of its its ability to really explore 
questions that we're not allowed to explore. Um, you know, the, I think every um, everyone who's thinking about the, the state of the world and what we might do about it, they always end up having this exact same argument, whether it's on the radio or over a couple of drinks or whatever. And they have you have one person on one side saying, oh, we, we need a revolution. You know, we can't just tweak around the edges. Things have got to fundamentally change because otherwise we're just dealing with symptoms. We're not dealing with fundamental causes. And on the other side, someone arguing about, well, that's that's ridiculous. We don't have time to wait for a revolution. Everything's so urgent. You know, we've got to operate within the frameworks we've got now. We've got to get on with it. And those those arguments go on forever and ever and never get resolved. And I think the reason they never get resolved is because they're both right. Mm. And actually, you know, yes, we need fundamental radical change. And yes, there isn't time for it. And they can never usually admit that they're both right and then go to the deeper level conversation, which is about, well, hang on. If we need something and there isn't time for it, where does that leave us? Yeah. And if we can never get to that deeper discussion, then we can never actually have anything more than kind of superficial arguments. And I think what's great about Dark Mountain is that it opens a space where we can actually say, well, hey, hey <laughs> what, what happens if we accept that both of those things are true? Because we all sort of secretly suspect that it might be at the very least. And then can we actually have a conversation where we talk about, well, what if there isn't time for what's needed? Because we're still here and we've still got to live and we either live in denial of the fact that we think that might be going on or we actually have a talk about it and figure out, you know, what might what might meaningful lives look like in a world that, for example, is into runaway climate change or, you know, has left the energy crisis far too late to act appropriately. And I think, you know, Dark Mountain, that's for me, it's great contribution is saying, you know, let's talk about this stuff because you know, why are we not allowed to? I, th I think one of our ethics here at Greening the Apocalypse is that, like, we might be fucked, but there are, there are different shades of fucked. <laughs> right, yeah. As, and, as Paul Kingsnorth likes to say, the, the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world. <laughs> exactly, yes. And, and, yeah. and so your, your mentor, the late David Fleming, he was one to, I think, accept that, uh, or at least think that collapse was likely that, that maybe a generation oh, from now. Definitely, he thought it was inevitable. Yep. Yeah, and yet he didn't go into a kind of nihilistic state about that and lose himself <laughs> in a drug-fueled fury. I mean, <laughs> frenzy. He he might have for a time. I'm not sure. But... Sunday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, he... some Sunday nights with a drug-fueled frenzy nights with David. <laughs> <laughs> but he he nevertheless he did look forward uh, and and thought about the future. And you've recently edited two books based on his surviving manuscripts. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just agree with you first that um, there was a lovely blurb that uh, Jeremy Leggett wrote for one of the books. He said, these books are less about what we stand to lose and more about what we've lost already and stand to regain if we do things right. And I think that was, that really sums up the essence of them. But yeah, basically, so David, away very suddenly actually at the end of 2010 um, and, uh, I'd, I'd been working very closely with him for, for four years by that point. Um, and he was my sort of closest collaborator and, and partner in crime. But actually his his life's work, um, this this huge book, Lean Logic, A Dictionary for the Future and How to Survive It, uh, he'd never actually let me see until a few weeks before he died. He said that we were, um, we were too close uh, and the work was too close to his heart. And if I was critical of it, we'd fall out. And uh, he didn't want us to fall out, so I wasn't allowed to look at it. And, uh, and he'd been working on this book for over 30 years. And so after he died, he didn't really, he didn't have any, any children or other close relatives. So I was involved in going through his, his belongings and, and sorting out his place. And, and on, on his home computer, I found the, the final manuscript of this book. And just a few weeks before he died, he'd let me read the introduction, which I thought was amazing. And so I felt, uh, I felt emboldened and uh, permission given to have a look at it. And it was it was just the most incredible experience. I mean, David was this amazing conversationalist I and mean, conversations with him rank among the most refreshing and startling and enjoyable experiences of my life. And it was like an invitation to one last rambling conversation with David about anything and everything. And one of the one of the, the beautiful things about speaking with David was he draw these astonishing parallels between things. You know, you'd be talking about community resilience and he'd mention the music of Bach or or the wind in the willows, and you think, well, what's that got to do with it? And then he would explain, and it would become this huge, enlightening connection. And Lean Logic, with this book, he, he essentially 
I like to say he sort of pre-invented Wikipedia because um, that's very much the structure of it. It's, it's divided into dictionary entries, but any word that has its own entry has a little asterisk next to it, so you can jump from one to another. And at the end of each entry, there are um, there's a short list of related entries, often related in ways that you can't quite fathom until you get there. And uh, and so it has this this sort of choose your own adventure vibe to it that you follow the path of your own interest through the book. Um, so I was reading this and thinking, wow, you know, this is a, this is an astonishing work and it needs to be published. David never quite got to that point during his lifetime. So I started talking to friends in publishing about it and they, they were sort of fully in agreement that it's an amazing book, but saying, well, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. It's a sort of 300,000 word hardback and it's in this unusual format. And, you know, are people going to be able to, to get to grips with it? And so at that point, started thinking about producing some kind of more accessible version, which has become this paperback surviving the future, which David, in fact, never had the slightest inkling would ever exist, um, purely a creation uh, after his death. Um, and so basically what I did to create Surviving the Future was choose one of the potential pathways through Lean Logic, through that choose-your-own-adventure Wikipedia-style dictionary, and draw that out into a conventional narrative, read-it-front-to-back book um, at paperback length. Basically what I explore there is his very radical and fundamentally different economic paradigm, because David was, uh, was an economist by training, but, but by an unusual path in that he he was involved in setting up the the Green Party in this country, which was then, I think, called the Ecology Party. And Jonathan Porritt, who knew him very well, remembers that these early Ecology Party conferences, David Fleming urging his, his peers that we need to learn the language of economics because it's the economists who keep telling us that we're being unrealistic. So we need to learn their language so that we can prove them wrong. <laughs> um, and being true to his word, by the time I met him, he'd got a PhD in economics. And uh, he was involved in, in setting up uh, quite an influential organization over here called the New Economics Foundation. Uh, he was a chair of the Soil Association, which advocates for organic agriculture. Um, and he was also one of, the, one of the sort of whistleblowers on peak oil. He worked with Colin Campbell, the Irish oil geologist, was one of his closest friends. And David helped to sort of break his work to the world. And so, yeah, David's training was in, in well, his academic training was in history and economics. Uh, and he lays out this sort of economic model that's um, a model for society after collapse. Because he basically looked at our growth-based economy and said, well, it's, 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 in, it's unsustainable, which means it's going to end. It's, people forget that's what unsustainable means. Um, and so what's the world going to look like after it ends? Um, and how might, we, how might we prepare for that? And, and how, how might that be organized? And so it, surviving the future is really focused on pulling out from the dictionary this sort of model of an economics which is based not in economic growth but in in culture actually this very different paradigm of a of a society where as he says there's there's time for music again um where we're not based on this eternal drive for greater productivity and you must work harder because otherwise you're going to be out competed by someone else uh, and he lays out a vision of, of how that can be realistically put into place and and what i really love about it is it's not just oh, here's this clever guy who's come up with this brilliant idea. But with his, his historical and his anthropological work, really what he's doing is he's explaining how the economies worked throughout all of human history up until the last few hundred years when we had this, this crazy sort of binge of fossil fuel, energy fueled economic growth. And, and, you know, unfortunately, it's lasted just long enough that those of us alive now kind of grew up in it and our parents grew up in it. And so we somehow think it's normal, even though it's this incredible historical anomaly. And so really what all he's doing is talking about the economic models that existed in a way before we thought of them as economic models, when we just thought of them as how people got on with each other and, and how life went on. It could be a good time to hear, hear a word from David himself. And you yeah, sent through this, uh, lo this, this, <laughs> this lovely recording of David. I think he was sitting up a tree at the time. Is that true? That's right. Yeah, he was indeed. He was interviewed by a young man called Henrik Dahler, who did a project. Uh, for a year of climbing a tree every day. And after about, I think, a month of this, he got a bit bored. So he started inviting people to climb the trees with him and interviewed them up the trees. Uh, <laughs> and he, um, he, yeah, actually only about a month before, the, before David died. I don't think there was a connection. <laughs> but about a month before David died, he, um, he got him up an oak tree and on Hampstead Heath near where David lived and uh, had, a, had a fascinating conversation with him. Brilliant. And we should just point out that at the beginning, he's talking about the informal economy which is that part of the economy that isn't monetized. So 
anything from baking a cake, at least that part after you've bought the ingredients, if you bought them, but the value adding that you do from turning flour and eggs and sugar into a cake, uh, that part's not monetized, but you're adding value. And every time that there is a transaction or, a, you know, favors, doing favors between friends is part of the informal economy. And raising children, although it costs you money in the modern world, uh, but that that is very much part of a, the informal economy. Your Your children don't pay you to raise them. That's <laughs> unmonetized for the most part. Uh, so that's what he means by the informal economy. And part of his argument for the future is that we will have to go back to more of that. So anyway, here's David Fleming. Um, we tend to think whenever, if we, if we talk to, to most people about this, they would say, come on, pull, pull the other one. This is, not, this is not real estate. But actually, we also need to recognize how crucially important they the informal economy already is now, and most of the things what we're doing right now is in the informal economy. We're not getting not, not getting paid for this. Um, our family life is informal. All our friends are part of the informal economy. Most of the things which people in our kind of light life do are part of the informal economy. We do things for each other constantly, all the time. Uh, and uh, if I were to do something, if I was to do something for a friend and they were to offer to pay me, I would be mortally insulted. That'd be more or less the end of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So the thing is, we tend to oh, come off, come off in the informal economy. This is terribly romantic, uh, unrealistic. On the, on, the, on the contrary, it's very unrealistic to dismiss the important, the informal economy as being, as being unimportant. So it's going to be a, 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 a big rediscovery of the, inf the, the informal economy, which is very hard, very hard to summarise. <laughs> but how does it? Okay, the, you're doing a lot of research about how things have worked and how, th and you've obviously got ideas about how things could work. But you know, we've got this whole financial system. Are you, you're talking about replacing that with something else? No, unfortunately, I'm not. I don't think it's going to last. I mean, I think a lot. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm, I'm a bit of a, sort of a, a right winger to, to most people's horror, horror and shock. And so I think, in many ways, the system, <laughs> the system we've got at the moment is really is not a bad system. I think capitalism is a, is a good thing. The only problem with capitalism is that it destroys the planet, you know, um, and that right. it's, it's based on growth. I mean, apart from those two little details, it's got a lot to be said in its favour. Yeah. And when capitalism dies, you know, we'll be on our knees. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, we'll wish it was back because it's, um, it supports a, a high standard of living. It supports freedoms. Where from the point of view of freedom, an incredibly free society, and mm. that is basically to do, do with the, the, the capitalist system we've got. So it's mm. a wonderful system in, in a way. It's very efficient. It's based on pull. It's not based on authoritarian people telling other people what to do on the whole. It's based on people in, uh, ask, asking for services and, and paying for them. So in many ways, it's got a lot to be said in its favour. But you've got the absolute, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's got these absolutely crucial flaws, um, which is, well, the, the essential flaw is it depends on growth. Um, and... Um, and uh, and it will go on. It will go on depending on growth to the point at which it at which at which it collapses. Uh, it's not necessarily an argument against a system that it collapses because most systems do collapse in the end. I mean that's part of the nature of the wheel of life. You know, systems do collapse, and there is life and death. So I think I, I, I'm to some extent slightly inclined to forgive capitalism for for uh, being about to collapse. I mean, there are lots of fine things, you know, lots of love affairs and, which have, have come to a sticky end and lots of novels which come to an end. And life tends to come to an end. I mean, life itself comes to an end. You can't necessarily blame life for being something that comes to an end. So I'm not really going to blame capitalism. On the other hand, it does. I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's quite quite a thing to be held with. Yeah, quite, quite an accusation. You know, it's hard for it to live down, the accusation that not only is it... Um, is it is it um, based on, on the ludicrous idea that growth can continue indefinitely, but it's going to destroy the entire planet with it. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a lot. That, that, a that, that's, a, that's a big, big problem. It's, a big, it's, not, it's not a small problem. It's a fairly <laughs> sort of fundamental <laughs> pro problem. There. But anyway, the thing is, so the thing is as, uh, it, as, uh, as um, it is uh, going to um, hit the buffers in, in, in this way, we don't have to go around destroying things. We don't have to dismantle the banking system. Whatever we do with the banking system, it will make absolutely no difference at all. We do not have to change, reform things. I'm not a reformer. I don't think we should bother. We should waste time reforming things. It's going to reform itself in that it's going to come to um, um, uh, falling about our ears very, very quickly indeed. And indeed, the longer we keep the system going, in some ways, you could argue the longer we keep the system going, uh, the, 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 the longer the growth will continue and the greater will be the fall when it eventually happens. The more nuclear power stations we'll be able, we'll be able to build, build, build. Uh, the more forests we'll be able to cut down, the greater the CO2 uh, accumulations when eventually the crash happens. Um, so there is something to be said, actually, for, uh, for the crash being earlier rather than later. 
So, so David Fleming <laughs> in his final interview. <laughs> yeah, so there's a there's a taste of, of what he was like in conversation. Yeah. Um, although it probably doesn't help some people about us think he's up a tree, and it probably doesn't help that they keep playing clips from him literally up a tree. But there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, so he he very much thought that as much as he liked capitalism, it was a it, um, <laughs> was a self consuming system or a self defeating system that's inevitably going to collapse. I guess to second guess um, listeners' thoughts, or maybe to express my own, I mean, logically, there is two ways we could go. We either crash or we crash through and, and, and achieve escape velocity and colonize distant stars. Uh, and we've done a... <laughs> we, we Sarah's impressed with that idea. Yeah, well, we actually did a whole <laughs> show on the unlikelihood of that once. Yeah, um, I'm with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I have a lot of sympathy from for where... David is coming from. Would you say you're yeah, I mean, what, what's, what's... to forgive it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, once, once, once people have, you know, colonised the Sahara and yeah. prove they can do that, then I'll start talking to them about how they're going to colonise somewhere vastly harsher than that um, in, in the sense of other planets. But, yeah. you know, we're, we're not even close to realistically and, God forbid, economically being able to colonise most of the planet we're on, <laughs> let alone other ones. So. Mm. In in a sense, he was defeatist in that sense, but he wasn't in his outlook. He, he, the book, you wouldn't bother writing a book um, about how things could be in the future if he wasn't looking forward and trying to think quite subtly, actually, about what what we lost in those generations of expansion and industrialization and what we could regain in a post-industrial future mm -hmm. and yeah what were some of those things that he he thought we have lost in the past and that he he kind of selects i don't think he would say everything was good about about pre-industrial england um no not at all but, not at all. but there's mean, certain aspects yeah. that he promotes yeah i mean I, I wouldn't um i wouldn't characterize him as as defeatist in the slightest i mean i would say i mean if you're if you're you know, if you're looking at two plus two equals four and you're saying, oh, but we can break through to five. Well, you know, it's not defeatist to say, well, actually, two plus two equals four. You know, like actually a, a, a system based on indefinite growth is is going to end. There's no two ways about it. Um, we can certainly debate about when. But, you know, I wouldn't call it defeatist. I would call it realistic. But then maybe everyone calls their point of view realistic. <laughs> so maybe maybe I am. A, maybe I'm a defeatist. But um but uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, the focus of his work is very much on um, yeah what we've lost and that space for for play and for carnival and for culture and and rediscovering as he as he as he writes, you know, the things that really matter actually. Um, and in in that interview, I remember the interviewer uh, asked him what really matters, and he says music. And the uh, the interviewer is slightly taken aback, but you know that's actually what life's all about and it used to be that you know the economics and everything was sort of the needle hiss it was the stuff that happened in the background that wasn't very important um but somehow the needle hiss in our current culture has has taken over and put itself at the center and pretended that what really matters is you know economic growth which seems to be how our societies measure their success um and so really i would i would characterize this whole approach as being not getting into you know trying to um, obviously not trying to build further economic growth, but also not trying to go down the, the degrowth path either, um, which there's a lot of people talking about at the moment, because to his mind, that sort of misses the point in the sense that the market economy is going to degrow of its own accord pretty soon and faster than we might desire it in ways that are going to leave us really struggling because that's the economy that we're currently fully dependent on. So what, what really matters for him is not focusing on either the growth or degrowth of the market economy because that's sort of beyond saving, um, but instead really expanding what he was talking about in that clip, the informal economy, the non-monetary economy, which to, to this day is still the core economy of our society. It's still the basis on which you know we get raised by our families and the basis on which we do all the things that we naturally do when we're not otherwise compelled of, of play and, and volunteering and activism and friendship and family and home. All of these things are done in a, in a non-monetary way. And yet, over the last certainly couple hundred years, we've seen that that non-monetary economy being sort of weakened and, and, and pushed out and wounded by this this invasion of the market 
um, that sort of pushed itself into more and more areas which used to be informal. Like, you know, if you you're grieving, for example, maybe these days you could pay go and pay a counsellor rather than talking to your friends or whatever it may be. And everywhere we look, this this monetary economy has kind of expanded. And so for David, the key the key challenge was how can we repair those those atrophied social structures on which most human cultures have been built and rediscover how to rely on each other again rather than on money because then it starts to become feasible for us to think about life after the end of the monetary economy if we're not used to thinking well if I'm going to be okay what I need to do is get this much income and get myself a, a pay for a home and you know if we actually start thinking in terms of well if I'm going to be okay what I need is community relations and what I need is good friends around me and what I need is also a healed ecology and those are his two focuses the informal economy and the ecology because those are the those are the economies if you like that have supported all of human history up to this period of the market economy I, I like to say that there's only one political system that works and it's not capitalism and it's not communism it's nature uh, and all the other systems are just toying with the surplus generated by that system hmm. and yet again that really important sort of natural economy is also being massively degraded by our by our economic growth in all the ways that we know about the deforestation and climate change and everything else. So so really that's his core thing is how do we how do we relearn how to to rely on each other and enjoy each other again? How do we rebuild space within this economy for things like music and culture and play? Because actually that's not just some sort of archaic longing for a for a past time that's sort of quaint. Actually what we're doing as we rebuild those networks, is rebuilding the very, the very informal economy that's going to be the only thing that's going to catch us after the collapse of the market. Mm. So I'm supposed to go to work tomorrow. So uh, should <laughs> I not go to work, put on a box CD, play Jenga with Adam, and do some gardening? Is that is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you wouldn't be going too far wrong. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is. Um, yeah, I've just been reading uh, this this book that Adam was co-authored, uh, The Art of Frugal Hedonism, and I think there are a lot of tie-ins actually between that and David Fleming's vision, and indeed between my own my own lifestyle over the last ten years, which has been about, you know, how can I learn to live as cheaply as possible so that I don't have to spend my time going to work earning money to do something that someone else wants me to do, but can instead focus on the things that seem to me to be the most important things to do. Because to me, there's nothing I can buy with money that's more valuable than spending all my days doing something I'm really passionate about. Mm. Um, I just can't find anything more valuable than that. So I'm, I'm going to set a pretty high price before I sell that. Um, and of course, you know, this book, The Art of Frugal Hedonism, is, is really about that. It's about how do we actually... Um, how do we reduce our dependence on the monetary economy so we don't have to spend as much time going to work and we can focus on, you know, playing Jenga or gardening or whatever it is that we want to do when we're not otherwise compelled. Um, and actually, I've, I've been very involved. One of one of my best friends is a guy called Mark Boyle, who's known as the moneyless man. I love him. <laughs> he, he's great. He's, he's yeah. so annoyed he's got off the internet. Has he, he, he has. He's, he's, he has. He's quit electricity altogether. So we, we were looking. Internet. I was just getting started yeah. reading everything that he ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you'll enjoy it because so briefly, I mean, he, he spent a year. He, he looked at the world and thought, well, everyone I know is doing something they don't believe in. Most of them are doing it for money. So being a bit of a weirdo, he thought, well, what would happen if I lived for a year without money? Um, so he uh, he um, gave away the boat he was living on and posted a message on Free cycle. I don't know if you've got free cycle over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. Yep. So he posted a message on there saying, um, "Has anyone got anything I could live in? <laughs> Thinking he might get a tent or something." <laughs> and this woman can have my caravan that's parked outside my house. He'd be doing me a favour, taking it away. And he found a farmer who'd let him live on his land in exchange for doing some help at harvest time. Uh, and so he lived for a year without money. He wrote a book about it called The Moneyless Man, which is a great read. Uh, and then he and I met actually at the first Dark Mountain uh, festival. Um, he was promoting that book and I was promoting my transition book and, um, and we really connected and he was at that point thinking, well, this is great. And actually I've never been happier and I've written the book now, but I'm going to carry on living this way. And, uh, but at the same time, it's not really sustainable on my own because, you know, at some point I'm going to get sick or injured, even though I've never been healthier. Um, and you know, at some point you're going to need some wider support and it's a bit lonely. So we started talking my background in community activism and his background in, in this moneyless experiment about setting up a moneyless community together. And he was by this point getting lots of emails from people saying, wow, I want to live this way. How do I find some land? 
Uh, and we hooked up with this group called the Ecological Land Cooperative that was just getting started over here uh, and went through a long planning process to eventually get permission, not just for, a, for our moneyless project, but for a 22-acre site with three different ecological land projects. And uh, it's a long story in itself, but basically after the, after the multi-year planning battle, we eventually got permission. Uh, and then Mark had a, a sudden sort of, uh, it's a long story, but he had a change of heart and uh, decided that he was going to move back to Ireland, which is where he's originally from. He felt the sort of call of his homeland and realized that given that we don't fly or anything, that he probably wouldn't see his folks very much and decided Ireland was the place for him. So he moved back to start what we'd written a, a, our non-business plan for our money and economy. And he, he went back to Ireland and it's now putting that into practice and it's going wonderfully. I was over there last summer and that's all all happening over in the Republic of Ireland. And uh, I've stayed in England. Uh, and as you say, what since he's since he's doing that, he's now decided that um, that yeah, the uh, the industrial economy is something that has too many too many undesirable externalities for him. He's not comfortable using um, you know laptops and things that are built on the suffering and exploitation of not just other people but the natural world as well. And is exploring what it would look like to fully localize one's economy um, and not be reliant on things like you know, solar panels and laptops. Um, so, and so, yeah, he's he's pulled out of, of electricity now and is um, is living on this uh, small holding in Ireland. So, so does he, he lives off, to some extent, the, the excess of the, the modern world and industrial society and gets stuff from the waste stream, does he? Uh, at the moment, yes. At the yeah. moment, there's, there's a certain degree of that. What he's, the longer-term plan, so he's based in permaculture, growing uh, a food forest over there, which mm. is obviously still young because he's only been there for, what, two or three years now. But yeah, so the idea is to rebuild, again, much like David Fleming's work, rebuild the natural economy so that it can so that it can support people fully again. Um, but while that's done, yeah, he's, I mean, he's, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the finer details of what he's doing there now because, um, you know, we're only in touch by letter writing and I haven't <laughs> been there over the last, like... Uh, year or so but uh, certainly pigeons. yeah we do use a lot of carrier pigeons actually there's one in the window just outside here it's obviously <laughs> got something crucial for me because it's doing at me um <laughs> but certainly during his his initial year um you know it was part it was grow as much as he could um and then it was you know forage as much as he could and then it was as you say scavenging waste streams so doing things like skip diving and then the, the last kind of resort was um, kind of barter, which he saw as a bit of a cheat because it's, um, as, as people like David Graeber have pointed out, although our conventional story is that we sort of had barter and then money developed, actually it's more the other way around. Actually, um, historically and anthropologically, people were initially based much more in the kind of economy David Fleming talks about of reciprocal obligations and very strong sense of social debt. And then money developed. And then the only places where you see barter, really, in any, to any significant level, is places where there was a monetary economy, which then collapsed. And people are trying to kind of recreate it through barter mm. um, because it's sort of all that they all that they kind of have been trained into. So he tried to avoid barter. But certainly in his first year, he did end up doing a bit of bartering for, you know, I'll do a bit of work for you in exchange for a bag of oats or whatever mm-hmm. um, when necessary. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So that's Mark. <laughs> Do you feel like we've, we've done justice to, uh, to to David's the more positive things of the lean economy that he that he suggests would be ethics and practices to to take on board? Well, I mean, maybe one of the best things I can do is is read a little bit from um, David's work, which I think maybe sums up um, an element of his of his vision. Sounds like um, that. yeah. Okay. So um, we'll recline. <laughs> yeah, please. Do. I'll just get my smoking jacket. <laughs> excellent, excellent, and pipe, I hope. Um, yeah, this is from the Surviving the Future book that I pulled out from his work. The great transformation has already happened. It was the revolution in politics, economics, and society that came with the market economy, and which hit its stride in Britain in the late 18th century. Most of human history has been bred, fed, and watered by another sort of economy. But the market has replaced, as far as possible, the social capital of reciprocal obligation, loyalties, authority structures, culture, and traditions with exchange, price, and the impersonal principles of economics. 
Unfortunately, the critics of economics have had a tendency to discuss the whole structure as a tissue of misconceptions. It is a critique that fails. The strength of economics is its considerable, if far from complete, understanding of the flows and comparative advantages that underlie trade, jobs, capital and incomes, and the logic of optimising behaviour, all backed by glittering accomplishments in mathematics. That makes it a powerful analytical instrument, so that just a few misconceptions, such as a failure to understand the informal economy or resource depletion, can have leverage. Like a baby monkey at the controls of a Ferrari, they can turn it into an instrument with extraordinarily destructive potential. If it were a tissue of errors, it would not be dangerous. It is its 90% brilliance which makes it so. Indeed, the government's main task in a mature market economy is to keep it free of obstacles that might stop it growing. Like a bemused farmer would treat the enchanted goose, keep the foxes out so that it can go on magically laying its golden eggs. The market's achievements and answers sound authoritative and final. But what is truly most significant about them is how naive they are. If the flow of income fails, a powerfully bonding combination of money and self-interest will no longer be available on its present all-embracing scale, and perhaps not at all. And it must inevitably fail, as the market's taught competitiveness demands ever-increasing productivity and thus relies on the impossibility of perpetual growth. In the meantime, the reduction of a society and a culture to dependence on this mathematical abstraction has infantilized a grown-up civilization and is well on the way to destroying it. Civilizations self-destruct anyway, but it is reasonable to ask whether they have done so before with such enthusiasm and in obedience to such an acutely absurd superstition, all while claiming with such insistence that they were beyond being seduced by irrational promises such as those of religion. Every civilization has had its irrational but reassuring myth. Previous civilizations have used their culture to sing about it and tell stories about it. Ours has used its mathematics to prove it. Yet, when this relatively short-lived market society is gone, we will miss its essential simplicity, its price mechanism, its self-stabilizing properties, its impersonal exchange, the comforts it delivers to many, and the freedoms it underwrites. Its failure will be destructive. And the end is in sight. During the early decades of the century, the market will lose its magic. It is the aim of Lean Logic to suggest some principles for repairing or replacing the atrophied social structures on which most human cultures were built as the basis for a cohesive society that might survive the turbulent times to come. Well, thank you. <laughs> it was a pleasure. And I, and I think that that's, that's really... You know what what his work is all about is you know there's no conventional political party anywhere in the world that doesn't have economic growth as the underpinning foundation for its vision of how to make lives better but david really developed these unique astonishing ideas about about resilience and good lives for people without growth where we can actually you know mm. in, in actual fact you know although although western society is you know swimming in the riches of, of oil and the exploitation of other of other nations nonetheless we're not as a rule, massively happier, um, that actually people really miss community and they miss conviviality and they miss supporting each other and music and playing Jenga and gardening. And so, and we said we'd come back to the Transition Towns movement. That is really what Transition's been all about. Transition was hugely inspired by David Fleming's work, which although it's only coming to publication now, sort of drafts of his work were circulating among sort of thinkers and activists. And Rob Hopkins, who... Um, co-founded Transition and is the kind of figurehead of Transition, often says that all he did with Transition was he took David Holmgren on permaculture, Richard Heinberg on peak oil, and David Fleming on community and resilience, rolled them together and made it comprehensible. And that was what Transition is. And I think you know, Rob's, Rob's being a bit humble when he says that, but it, it brings home that this, this vision that David had is not just, um, not just something that's kind of coming out in books now. It's actually something that's already birthed this huge global movement. I mean, there are now thousands of transition communities all around the world which are exploring ways of putting this into practice. How can we start to claim back some of our lives from the market economy now and start rebuilding that informal economy um, in ways where every step forward feels like not a sacrifice or a protest, but like a party? And I mean, I think one of the things that's really inspiring about, about David's vision and about transition is that it's, it's an alternative to the things that we're always told to do. Um, the things we're always told to do about the mess the world's in are 
you know, lobby our politicians, which is just a bit disheartening because you tend to get ignored, or, you know, personal lifestyle change, which tends to get a bit disheartening because you feel like you're just a drop in the ocean and everything's going in the opposite direction. And what Transition and, and David's work really holds out is a, is, a, is a third alternative, which is get together with your local community and then you're acting on a scale where it's big enough that you can make a difference that's actually meaningful, where you can actually see things change. You know, maybe you can send the park into a... Um, into an allotment system or you can you know get your road closed once a week so that you can um let all the kids play in the street again or you know whatever it may be so you're acting on a scale that's big enough where it's it's meaningful and you can actually achieve things but it's small enough that your voice actually has a say that's meaningful and you can actually see your personal contribution and that kind of bottom-up participatory conversation is really what david's work is all about he's saying you know it doesn't matter what the what the great minds are telling us need to be done. All the really great things that happen in life happen because ordinary people get together and discuss and 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 make a difference at their local level. Um, I mean, and actually, one of the things I find fascinating about Lean Logic, the structure of it, although it's very unusual and some people find it quite challenging, um, I think it's actually um, one of these things where the medium reflects the message. I think that David, because he was so focused on the bottom up, um, he actually, I think, I mean, this is speculative. We never talked about this, but I think he was even uncomfortable with the, the traditional relationship between a, an author and, and this audience, if you like, which is very much the kind of the kind of lecturer relationship. You know, I'm just going to talk and you're going to sit there and listen. Um, whereas he, he writes in his um, in his introduction to Lean Logic. He says, arriving at reading this book for the first time is perhaps like arriving in a group or a community. You learn about its members and their relationships with each other by being in the middle of it. There is no beginning or end. The more you know the group, the more you yourself become part of it and part of its story. It's a story about the shared experience of something discovered, something discussed, something done. So even the structure of his book was a way of encouraging the reader to be an active participant, to choose their path through the book and to you know, challenge his thoughts and try them out rather than just sort of sitting there and reading it as some kind of, um, you know, interesting intellectual argument. And I suppose the other thing I really should emphasize about his books is how funny they are. Um, I mean, they're, they're just brilliantly really entertaining. He has a wonderful turn of phrase. One, one reviewer described it as having the feeling that they, as they read the whole book, they could feel the author winking at them, which I thought, uh, <laughs> which I thought summed it up beautifully. And I think that, that, yeah. that clip, not in a creepy way. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, that would be, that would be some weird <laughs> necrophilia to have some dead guy <laughs> hunting you down. But, um, uh, but I mean, I think you heard in that, in that few minutes we played from that interview with him that you're, you're never quite sure how much of what he's saying is serious and how much is tongue in cheek. And, um, yeah, and, and it, the other thing about it that I found was he, he doesn't waste a lot of words on saying things that you've heard before. Mm-hmm. Everything in there is going to challenge someone's assumptions, whether they're a, they're a mainstream economist or whether they're an environmentalist. Yeah. And, and it, it really is quite, a, quite an entertaining and thought-provoking read. Yeah. And one that bounces along with a lot of fun and uh, quotes from all over the place. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He, he was obviously quite a literary guy too. I undoubtedly the most read person I've ever met. I mean, his his his. Yeah. his I wanted to mind. ask you who his favourite novelist is. Like, oh, was do you know who I, I, his I favourite novelist was? No, I don't. I, know I mean, I, I know that he. Um, I mean, he quotes a lot of, you know, a lot of fiction, a lot of poetry, and a lot of. I mean the 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 um the uh, lean logic is 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 almost a work of literature in itself. <laughs> um, I think yeah. it's it's something like you know twenty pages long um, bibliography and not in large text. Um, but no, no, I don't know. I don't know his favorite novelist, unfortunately. But there are an awful lot of them um, quoted and referenced in his book. Mm. Well, Sean, we could. There's so many things that we could talk about with regards to the books and um, and his thoughts and yours. And what what is really pretty remarkable in so far as looking at where the world is heading, mm. um, seeing what most people would consider to be, you know, perhaps an unpleasant and challenging future ahead of us, mm. and yet drawing out from it. Uh, some really rich and human and entertaining and 
and uh, genuinely inspiring. That word is overused, but I really felt something reading this and laughed out loud a few times. <laughs> and uh, and thank you so much for for bringing David's work to the public because um, it sounds like on his own he would have just kept refining and re-editing and it never would have uh, happened. Absolutely. I think actually he was terrified yeah. of, of publishing because he, you know, after spending 30-odd years on a book, the idea of it going out there and nobody <laughs> reading it I think would have just broken his heart. Um, but yeah, from yeah. my point of view, I thought, well, this is far better than anything I could write right now, so I might as well, <laughs> might as well throw my efforts behind <laughs> this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's been an absolute pleasure, Sean, and uh, we will put links on our website and Facebook and all the rest about where people can pick up a copy of both uh, the the two books. There, there is uh, Lean Logic: A Dictionary of the Future and How to Survive It, which is the the tome, the life work yep. of David Fleming and the smaller introductory text that you've edited together is one potential pathway through that Wikipedia-like book, mm. which you have called Surviving the Future, Culture, Carnival and Capital in the Aftermath of the Market Economy. Yeah. So thank you for your time, Sean. It's been great. It's been a real pleasure, guys. It's one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done in a long time. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation that Sarah and I had last night with Sean Chamberlain. He is the editor of two books by his mentor, the late David Fleming, Lean Logic, a Dictionary for the Future and How to Survive It, and a small introductory text, Surviving the Future Culture, Carnival and Capital in the Aftermath of the Market Economy. Thank you for manning the buttons tonight. Jed, did you have any thoughts on the interview tonight? It was a good interview. Very good. And thank you, because it's actually quite, for me, it was quite, obviously I hadn't heard it before tonight. It was quite thought-provoking about this whole... um, evolution to this economy based on culture rather than growth and people helping each other and you know i already see a bit of a move back to neighborhoods and neighborhood communities and Mm. i was just sort of thinking wouldn't it be nice if we could have this transition without the collapse having to cause it if we could actually transition to um to that that uh culture economy yeah but not have to have some sort of massive apocalyptic crisis i am with you there but i I think you know the point is that he was saying that you know the more we we do it now the less yeah the the more ready you are for a collapse and the less intense it would be yeah and it's quite fun along the way like you said people are doing it anyway yeah and uh i i think part of yeah what he's saying is that it's um it's it's not only inevitable in fact there was this beautiful line i heard i actually met david fleming um many years ago and i remember him saying this line from the audience in this conference and i've I've been saying it for the last 12 years but it's written in the book and he said localization stands at best at the limits of practical possibility but it has the decisive argument in its favor that there is no alternative (laughs) i like that so yeah so get i think david holmgren says uh collapse now and avoid the rush yeah and (laughs) and enjoy yourself along the way tell me was he um like he sounded yeah, yeah, he wore a he wore a yellow sports jacket from from memory, probably with um, patches on the elbows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I should mention if you'd like to know any more about our guest tonight, Sean Chamberlain, uh, you can visit darkoptimism.org, That's his website, and leanlogic.net is the website about the books that we we're talking about tonight. We also mentioned the Transition Network, which is transitionnetwork.org. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.